What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Live Free Podcast, where we help you guys reach financial independence through real estate investments and other investments. I'm here with my co-host, Mike. Mike, introduce yourself. Yo, what's going on, guys? Today, we're going to introduce what the Live Free movement is and what we started, and we'll talk about some of the real estate projects we've done and just give you guys our background. So let's get into it. Let's start with Mike. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm 19 years old as of today. Happy birthday to myself. It's currently June 14th when we're recording this. Uh, I've been in real estate for about a year and a half now. Um, kind of just graduated high school and moved to Philadelphia, best place on earth, and just started my real estate journey in short-term rental and have just become an agent since then and just an investor. Yeah, I, I actually met Mike a little while back. He started out just helping doing handy tasks around our short-term rental portfolio. I also started in Philly about four years ago. At the time, I think we were managing about 70 units and Mike uh, was new to the game. And since he's just really been a, a key player in what we do here in the industry, he's bought his first short-term rental. Tell us a little bit about that that house, Mike. Oh, it was, it was super exciting to be able to actually put what I've learned from being in Philly this whole time and learning about real estate and things like that and actually being able to put it into use. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, was, it was really beneficial to me to becoming an agent and sort of learning the game and really how um, things work, being able to run numbers for myself and being super confident in the returns and sort of what I was gonna make and the areas I was investing in. So it was really beneficial to be an agent throughout the whole process, but it was super exciting to be able to get into my first rental by myself. Um, I got to go through the whole process as me instead of just helping other other people like my friends and, and people around me do it. And I was super excited to be able to do it myself for the first time. Yeah, it was really cool to see, see you take that leap too, Mike. Uh, when I first met you, um, obviously I knew you were a special dude, but there's a couple key components that I think are really important to address here. The first one being you're mostly just an ordinary dude um, who just has a passion for investing. And I think that's what really separates you and what got you into owning your first house at 18. Um, other than that, I don't think it took a lot of startup capital or anything other than motivation. Um, what would you say really was the driving factor in you getting started? Tell me about that purchase specifically. Run me through the numbers. Um, so, so basically it was um, a purchase price of two forty-six five, dollars um, right around Tobihana area in the Pocono, Pennsylvania. Um, Basically, it was my closing costs and my down payment were about $12,000 each. Um, after furniture being about $8,000, I did all that myself. Um, it took about 60 days to close um, from, from accepted contract to be able to closing date, closing table. Um, so all in, it was about $40,000 and I was actually able to, to use my father um, as a 50-50 sort of deal because I actually don't have um, income on paper. I don't have a W-2. So it's, it's difficult for me to get uh, loan ability. So I was actually able to utilize his loan ability um, as a partnership in, into my first one. And that worked super well. Yeah, it's, it's awesome you're able to utilize your father as a way to get the loan. I know that's a tricky part for a lot of people your age, especially 18. Um, it takes a lot of balls to put uh, so much capital in at your age into a project. So tell me what you're looking to get out of that project. Um, well, currently right now it's listed on all the uh, different um, sort of sharing apps, so like your Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, um, all those sort of apps um, with the property management company I started out with um, when I first started going to Philly and helping out these guys. Um, and it rents about $150 to $200 a night on the weekdays and then 
um, somewhere between like 275, 300 on the weekends, which is super sick. So that's like Friday, Saturday, Sunday type days. Um, but I'm looking right about a year and a half, two years for ROI based on um, sort of how much money I put in, which was right about $40,000 with my father, half and half. I'm really glad you addressed that last point there, how much money you put in and the expected return time. Uh, every investor seems to have a different criteria for what type of cash on cash they're trying to get. When you look for something like, what kind of cash on cash do you typically look for? I know in today's age, especially people your age, they're so used to crypto and uh, those types of investments. But in real estate, with it having so much more security, we have to look at it with a different lens. And I'm curious how you approach this, having a little perspective in both industries. Well, for me, um, <clears throat> sorry, and not even just me, but for my clients as well and sort of people that I help with get into this game as well, I don't even really touch anything that's less than 20% cash on cash because it's just, it's just not worth the time and um, all the effort you have to put in to get this place and do all the work and get it ready to rent, um, all those sort of things. So if it's not at least 20%, I, I typically don't touch it. If it's a really cool house and it's a really good area and you're really maybe doing an appreciation play, maybe you'll look for something at 15%, um, but those are just sort of like key different areas. Yeah, you, you definitely hit the nail on the mark and you definitely hit that criteria for yourself on that first one because it sounds like you're, you're getting uh, conservatively about 50% cash on cash, which um, from my ex investment experience is a pretty solid return. I think you'll be able to scale pretty quickly at that. Uh, and I think a huge advantage you have here is you're going to be able to keep going with these. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that you can get into owning homes um, and still rent them out with what's called a secondary home loan or a vacation home loan, which allows you to put only 10% down. Uh, that's a, a really quick way to get into a deal with not a whole lot of cash and leverage yourself with the ability to, to maintain cash flow at the other end. Um, we're in a really good time in terms of interest rates. I know they've been going up lately. But historically, we just had a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, and unfortunately, being an agent in this market, I don't think the rates are going to go down anytime soon. So there's never been a better time to buy real estate except for yesterday. And other than that, it's today. Uh, to give you guys a little background on me, uh, I have a similar story to Mike in that I'm, I'm an agent. I'm a, a broker. Uh, I've been doing real estate for four years now. I had my first investment about four years ago. And since then, I've just been kind of stockpiling units. I'm up to 23 of my own. I manage a portfolio for, for friends, family uh, of over 200 rentals at this point, all in the short-term space. And I think what's really important to cover here is how Mike kind of got started. And I, I actually did a little homework on Mike um, after I met him, just seeing him on bigger pockets, seeing him posting about cash flow, about long-term rentals, about multifamilies. Uh, he kind of really got the bigger pockets bug and, and dove in. Uh, and it was really awesome to watch his shift into the short-term rental mentality. So I could go on for days about why I love short-term rentals and it's the only way I rent um, other than to my homies who I'll rent my, my houses to so they can have a sick experience in some of the turnkey rentals we have here. But Mike, I want to hear some reasons why you like short-term rentals versus long-term rentals. Yeah, so it's actually super interesting. Um, when I was first sort of um, before I even really jumped into real estate, I was kind of just learning about real estate and everything you can do with real estate because there's, there's so many things you can do with real estate. It's not just um, A or B. There's so many different things you can do. Um, originally, before I jumped in and actually did anything and I was just learning, I was super into the whole house hack idea and like long-term running. So my idea was always um, start off with a duplex, triplex, quadplex. Um, 
because that way you can um, any anytime you go after four units, you'd have to get um, a commercial loan. Um, you can't start out with an FHA loan, which will allow you, allow you to get three to five percent down, make it super easy, super cheap to get in. Um, so that was sort of my always uh, game plan at the beginning was just start with these long-term rentals, um, running out to some of my friends, you know, run out the second, third, or fourth unit, all of them together, um, and sort of just pay for my rent and all my expenses, and maybe even cash for a little bit on the top, anywhere from like one to five hundred dollars. Um, but once I started coming uh, to Philly and, and getting involved with more short-term rental management, um, uh, my whole idea, like my whole mindset just switched to short-term rental just because I, I saw how much better the returns are, how much easier it is to manage uh, uh, guests coming in and out. You don't have to deal with people not paying because they pay before they come in. If they break things, well, their card is already on file with Airbnb or VRBO, so getting refunds for that kind of things aren't really an issue. Um, your, your house typically doesn't get damaged as much. Um, sometimes it does if you have some parties, but typically it's, it's not too, too bad. And like I said, you just charge them back if they, if they damage things. Um, but the wear and tear sort of thing isn't, isn't quite as bad because they're not in there for months at a time, and the rental is, income is way more typically two to three times. Yeah, and I think you hit some really key points there that, that point to the security of short-term rentals. Um, I, like you, was super interested in long-term buy and holds. I wanted to do some traditional rentals, starting with house hack, move to the next, rent it out. But you really touched on some key points with short-term rentals. Um, one being that you don't have a tenant in there who, although they don't own the property, they treat it like they own it. And if, whether they're there for one year, two years, three years, when people make themselves at home, they start to, to really mark up the walls they start to do some some real damage. I've had tenants in the past who just drill holes in the walls or try to configure wires, do whatever it is that they feel like they can do as a tenant um, that leaves some some critical damage to the home that, that makes it a little tougher to charge back for. Not that you can't, um, obviously you should have a security deposit. Uh, it's just these kind of battles are a little tougher than the Airbnb Resolution Center um, or some of these third-party insurance carriers for the other travel agencies you'd mentioned earlier, Mike in that you make that claim and a couple of days it's resolved and you're getting paid out. Uh, another big thing is with long-term rentals, you're not going into those units as frequently as your cleaners are with short-term rentals. So you have eyes and ears on exactly how the property looks every time there's a checkout because you have a cleaner going in there to do turnover, taking any type of inventory and checking for things to be broken so that, that house looks pristine regardless. Um, that's a huge factor of short-term rentals that I think people don't look at. Last security point that I want to touch on is the vacancy. Um, with a long-term rental, you can either have vacancy or even worse, you can have a tenant who is in there and you're not vacant, but they're not paying. And resolving those issues are much harder, whereas with short-term rentals, you have so much more control. You're the sheriff in town. If everyone pays up front and if anyone tries to stay longer, they're out. There's, there's really no option. Uh, they don't get those same rights that traditional tenants get. And in my opinion, that security between not having to do any type of eviction, um, the extra cash flow, the constant checkup on units. And let's be honest, Mike, it's so much more fun and cool to show people these Airbnbs that, that we have because they just look sick, they're luxury, um, and there's a lot more pride and ownership, in my opinion, on that um, than some of the other investment routes. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but I think it's important we shed light on what it is that we do here. Um, within short-term rentals, there are a couple different ways you can cut it. I know there's a lot of gurus out there who preach this way, that way, the other way, left, right, east, west, north, south. I could go on. 
but there's so many ways to approach short-term rentals and so far it sounds like uh, my main strategy has been to buy turnkey um, or have things specifically built for short-term rentals that have specific amenities and we can get into those later uh, but that's how I've always approached it it's just a traditional purchase rent it out from there uh, and take the cash flow but you've gotten into some very interesting setups because you not only have that style the conventional but you also have gotten into some arbitrage situations that we see a lot of these gurus talk about so i'd love to hear your perspective on arbitrage and kind of what you've done with that mike so i think the arbitrage system is actually super interesting because um <clears throat> for a lot of people um like me if you can't get loans or you don't quite have enough money to be able to go into a house by yourself yet um, you can sort of get into these situations where you find maybe somebody who wants to rent out their, their house or their apartment or whatever, and you can sort of just get in contact with them and, and ask them like, hey, um, would you mind maybe if I rent it from you, but actually re-rent it out myself and, and manage tenants coming in on, on Airbnb. And typically after you know, 5, 10, 15, um, something like that, phone calls to different people, you can sort of find somebody who's, who's okay with you doing that because they don't mind, they'll, they'll get their money anyway. And then it's sort of on you, you can start trying to, trying to manage and, and get your own operation going. Um, and I've even seen people take that and, and start with one or two like that uh, arbitrage units where they just rent it out and then re-rent it out on Airbnb and that can turn into a bunch of cash flow and then it turns into a whole business where then they're, you know, they're doing 10, 20, 30 different rental properties and they're starting to buy their own and it, it can be super interesting because it's, it's very little cash to get into it and it, it can be very, very profitable. Yeah, you definitely touched on some of the key points there, Mike, and it, it's great to hear from you as someone who has experience with these in that you do have a low barrier to entry. It takes a little groundwork to get your first unit. You're going to have to make some phone calls, but once you do, you do have that same cash flow that you would otherwise, as long as you run the numbers right, um, as you compared to a purchase. But you also can then scale a little bit faster. It's a lot easier to get on a lease than it is to qualify for a home purchase sometimes. Uh, and you do have that benefit in being able to scale. The interesting thing with arbitrage and the reason that I personally prefer uh, purchasing is you lose out on the equity piece and the pay down and more importantly, the appreciation. And a lot of the markets we go into, whether it's the Philadelphia market where there's a lot of development, a lot of new construction, a lot of businesses moving into the Philadelphia area, um, or the Poconos, which is just a red hot vacation rental market that is just getting the same level of development up there, uh, you're missing out on that appreciation piece. So I'd be curious, Mike, if you had to pick one or the other, are you taking arbitrage or the purchase route? Um, it, it sort of depends. For me personally, I would more so look towards right now to buy in the purchase, but it sort of depends on what your situation is. If, if you can qualify for loans and you have some cash, I would totally go for buying a house first. Um, but if, if you don't really know much, like if your knowledge isn't too, too much there quite yet and you don't really have um, much loanability or you don't really have much cash, you could totally go the arbitrage route. Neither one is a, a wrong answer, I would say. But you definitely want to work yourself towards buying your, your own properties you can hold because um, you also get the appreciation piece and, and much more out of it. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think there is a really a wrong way to go. Um, it's more of a preference thing. And they're both going to cash flow. So as long as you have that piece there and you had solid underwriting going into that deal, you're going to really be able to, to pull in some money. Uh, for me personally, the way that I look at it is if an arbitrage unit is, say, making um, – 
you say you had a bad month and you break even or you got a hundred dollars a month profit or loss um, those numbers uh, don't get me out of bed in the morning whereas uh, you're still doing all of the same work you still had to set it up you still have to run all the operations if you're not profiting on an arbitrage uh, because a month went south then you just worked that whole month for nothing but if you didn't cash flow perhaps on a purchase you're still paying down that principal you still covered your mortgage you're still gaining the appreciation so to me um, even though a good arbitrage can profit three three hundred five hundred a thousand dollars a month uh, that other piece of the appreciation, whether you want to call appreciation 300 a month, 500 a month, and the mortgage pay down, which is usually around the stuff that we buy around 500 a month, low end, um, you're really tripling your gains by doing the purchase. And furniture being such a large cost with short-term rentals, the entry can be pretty similar from what I've seen. There's definitely some arbitrage situations that you can get at some pretty sweet deals. And there, there are the right deals, and it goes the same with purchase. Um, there's houses you can buy that are already furnished, which really helps with that cash on cash um, and getting in there and leveraging yourself. So there is no right or wrong answer. It's all going to depend on the deal you're faced with. And uh, I really hope you guys get out there and start trying to get into the short-term rental game. It's, it's definitely the future of the industry. And I've seen a lot of people building to this new travel lifestyle that's been accelerated with COVID to cater to people who are only going to be there for a week or a month or to larger groups where as opposed to the the old school traditional house that has two four or five bedrooms for a couple of extra kids um, they have one super sick master suite um, and otherwise they have just one kitchen and one living room i've seen people build out places that instead of having all those extra bedrooms um, each bedroom can kind of be a master um, so that every guest has such a cool experience there and they put multiple living rooms or other recreational rooms rooms to set up your podcast rooms to really live that lifestyle um, of the traveling worker or the digital nomad and that kind of stuff is not going to slow down so i'm really excited to see what happens with the short-term rental industry and where we can get um, and we're doing a couple things like that now uh, mike why don't you talk a little bit about the uh, renovation project we have going on up in the poconos Oh, so this is a super interesting project we, we've been recently working on. It's actually a 43-unit um, project we have going on up in Pocono, Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> there's a main building with uh, 13 units in it, um, which are they're, they're all smaller, like one-bedroom, two-bedroom type units. Um, so there's that main building with the 13 units and then smaller, like little log cabin um, type units just all the way around the property to get to that 43 number. Um, <clears throat> And we're taking it over from a, a current property management company right now that sort of just does that. Um, and they they mostly did long terms for the longest time, um, whether it be month to month or six months or a year lease. Um, they That's kind of what they specialized in. So we, we saw the opportunity and we took it and our whole idea is to get in there um, and, and slowly phase out these long-term tenants and, and switch it over to short-term. Um, maybe fix up the units a little bit. Um, we were able to get a, a seller finance on it, which is which is super interesting. We'll touch on that in a second here. Um, but we're going in there and we're completely revamping all the places, making it a little better, upping the rents, and just short-term renting it out. Yeah, and that's that's really the fun part is, is how many different ways there are to do real estate. There's nothing wrong with the way the current owners were running it. They have 43 units. They're all month-to-month -month leases. There's plenty of cash flow coming in. We're talking about a $4.3 million purchase price, and this thing was bringing in about $34,000 a month in gross long-term rent, which with long-term rentals and the lesser expenses, 
that you have, um, those are solid numbers. Um, we really like to see something like that. Um, it was an 8.6% cap rate when we were looking at it, um, just as long-term. So we knew if we went in there and did some work to these exterior units, like you said, the, the cabins that surround the property, we would really be able to, to hit on the short-term market and bump that cap rate from an already stellar 8.6% all the way up to 13.6% uh, uh, conservatively. And the really fun part, right, is the financing on this. So I'm sure a lot of you guys familiar with real estate investing know what a, a burr is, where you buy something, uh, then you renovate it, rent it out, and refinance it. So that's exactly what we're doing here, is we're gonna put about $450,000 of work into this place to renovate all these exterior cabins. Uh, and once we do that, best part is we're using all bank money. So we're gonna end up financing the purchase through the bank, we're gonna finance the rehab through the bank, and once that is all said and done, uh, we're gonna end up being able to pull some cash out once it's renovated, and we can show some of the numbers that we're doing here. Uh, we're gonna end up having a, an estimated ARV. Uh, the property's gonna be worth about 5.8 million once we're done with that $450,000 of renovation, which instantly puts a million dollars of forced equity uh, into the project. And that's where some of that refi money is going to come from. What we do is we get to keep the property and we get to continue to rent it on a short-term basis and cash flow pretty heavily from there. And my favorite part about this project um, and the reason I haven't been super interested in Burr projects before is it's just different. Um, it's lead going towards that industry change that I was talking about earlier where you're getting spaces that are just unique and different and cater to the new lifestyle where everyone can work remote. We've seen that proven by COVID um, and people can go enjoy uh, the resort that we're building and really make the most of it. And we benefit extra for creating that experience for guests. So you guys will see there's a lot less price, price elasticity um, in the short-term rental market. And what I mean by that is if you're trying to rent these units long-term, right? The main building started out not renovated um, the owners renovated those units, and I'm sure they bumped the rents up from seven, eight hundred dollars up a month, all the way up to a thousand to twelve hundred a month, depending on the unit, which is awesome forced cash flow and appreciation that they got from doing that. But now, when you rent these units short term, these little cabins that are renting for anywhere from six hundred to nine hundred dollars a month, they can end up pulling in two thousand to twenty five hundred a month, and that really is going to jack up the property value, given that it's a commercial property. So we're gonna have a lot of fun with this one. People are willing to pay so much more for an experience. I mean, think of it, you guys. If you're going out um, to the Poconos, you're going up to a, a mountain retreat with some of your friends, you're counting how much you're paying per head. You know you're doing it for the weekend. You saved up a little bit. You're gonna spend a little more because it feels like vacation. Whereas when you guys go shopping for where you're gonna live, the apartment you're gonna rent, that price really matters. That monthly lease payment really matters to you. Whereas when you're spending for vacation, whether you're spending $200 on the place for the weekend um, and everyone's splitting up or $300 for the weekend, you don't really care because you're splitting between people and you're really trying to have a good experience versus not having the place that you wanted to spend time with your friends. So there's just a lot of opportunity in the short-term market. Now let's pivot a little bit, Mike. Um, you touched on seller financing and we're doing that on the cabins down in Healing Springs right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about seller financing and some of your experience at the cabins? I know you went down to check them out when we did the home inspection. Yeah, so, so what he's talking about here, uh, Healing Springs is in, is in Tennessee. Um, sorry, North Carolina, my bad. <clears throat> and we have, we have 16 units there that we're starting to work on. 
Um, and what's interesting about a seller finance is, if you guys aren't, aren't too familiar with it, it's where instead of going to the bank to get financing, you can actually treat the seller as sort of the bank. Um, and, and what you can do is you can sort of kind of be really creative with how your sort of um, your deal structure goes. You can sort of make it way more um, creative, let's say. So instead of, let's say, doing um, a typical 30-year um, quote-unquote mortgage you would have at the bank, you would just basically give that 30-year mortgage to the seller and, and they would hold that for you. So you'd give them monthly payments um, and you can really choose with them and kind of just work out a deal and figure out how much, if any, you want to put down at the beginning. So what's super interesting is, is you can work it with them where you don't pay them any money up front. So there is no down payment. There is no closing cost, anything like that. You can make it so, so that is the option if they want to agree to that. Um, and you can really get creative. So you can do things like balloon payments where you pay X amount of money each month up to the first five years. And then after that, you pay the rest of the balance off. You can, you can really do whatever you want with it. Um, and it's just super interesting. Uh, I sell our finance. Um, there's, there's very rare circumstances and situations that I think uh, a, a structure like that could work. But when you're able to do that, it makes everything so much easier and just you, you can make it work around you. Yeah, you're totally right. The, the fact that you have a clean slate and you can get really creative with these deals um, and it really opens you up to a little more ease in the whole process. Um, for example, on the North Carolina deal, uh, with the seller acting as the bank, we didn't have to go out and find a lender who was willing to finance this project. And given that it's, it's a little unorthodox, uh, the zoning, ironically, is uh, labeled in the zoning committee as cabins. Now, there aren't many lenders out there that you can go to and say, hey, I want to finance these cabins. Um, traditionally, they want something longer term. They want longer term leases. Now, the industry is starting to change and allow more short term stuff. But, Mike, you've went through the mortgage process on a single family home. Uh, what was that experience like? Incredibly long, painful, and super annoying. You, you give them one paper and they ask for three more papers from you um, just to get a, a single family home. It's, it's super... Uh, it's not very complicated, but it's it's a pain in the ass, honestly. Yeah, the mortgage process can definitely be tedious. Um, it's definitely worth it at the end of the day. Um, but you're right. A lot of times with some of these underwriters and lenders, it's one step forward, then two steps back once they dig deeper into it. And that's the beauty of seller financing. Um, obviously, there's benefits to what kind of down payment you have to bring or how that works in the structure. But we were able to skip through having to find a commercial lender to do this deal. And the seller is going to act as a bank. Um, we put it on a 15-year note. Uh, the interest rate is 5.5%, and for those of you guys out here who have been investing, um, you know that when you're investing in something commercial right now, you're not touching a 5.5% interest rate, um, which works for the seller because that's a pretty hefty amount of money on what is a $1.5 million purchase that she's getting. Um, we're actually putting $450,000 down on that, and the reason for that is that's the amount it took for her to cover what she owed on the property plus paying out her broker. So she's not walking away with a whole lot of cash, but she is walking away debt-free from her prior obligation. And now she's earning money on the interest. She's getting monthly payments from us. Um, and she no longer has to, to work on this property. And we get a property that we can take over and try to boost the management and marketing to get it to, to go from what it was at a 9% cap rate and try to really bump that up to a 13 to 15% cap rate when all is said and done. Now, seller financing isn't for everyone. I know you guys out there are like, Hell yeah, I'm about to go seller finance everything. I know I can just 
ask, ask, ask away. And uh, Mike and I have had these conversations before. Um, like I said, I own uh, quite a few rentals now. Um, I have 23 properties at 28 years old. And everyone thinks because I have a decent number of properties and I don't seem to care about them um, as much as some of the newer stuff that's like, the exciting, shiny new toy, they think, okay, he wants to let go of that one. Will you sell or finance it? Um, and I always say, Mike, get the heck out of here because you have to really be careful of the position the seller's in. These seller financing deals don't work on everyone. You have to find someone who, remember, they have to pay off their obligation to whatever lender they had before. So you're gonna have to find someone who's free and clear or has a lot of equity in the property because if you're trying to put down a small down payment and you're really trying to leverage that thing, if they're selling their property and they still owe uh, more than you're offering them, then they're not gonna wanna take that. Um, they might wanna keep pursuing their own deals and they wanna keep moving. So when I look for seller financing, I try to get the backstory behind the seller. I wanna know what they might owe on the property. A lot of times you can look this up or um, if you're deep enough in the conversation, you can just ask them and, and see where they're at and see if they're open to it um, to try to get their situation. Now, a lot of times I try to make these offers to people who are a little bit older and the bias in there is because usually people who are older have more equity in the property. They've had the property longer. They've been paying it down longer. They've, they've earned that equity. And they're also not as strapped for cash or strapped to, to move as fast as some of these young hungry people are. Uh, and that's exactly what the case was for me and Mike. I'm still in my 20s. I'm still looking for mostly cash flow. Uh, when I do sell a property, I want to sell it so that I can get whatever equity that's in it out of it and move to a bigger project. With some of these older folk, uh, the fact of the matter is they're, they're trying to get out of the game. They've already owned a lot. Um, they don't want to get hit with a big tax burden. That's another big piece is the tax piece. Um, when someone sells a property, they're paying gains on all of the equity that they've, they've gotten in terms of above what they paid for it, right? So let's say the seller bought the Healing Springs at, for example, 500,000 15 years ago. Um, if they sell it for a million and a half now, they're gonna have a million dollar tax burden um, if they collect that in one fell swoop at a traditional sale. Uh, whereas if we're paying them monthly over 15 years, uh, it's, it's a whole different game in how much income they're earning every month and what they're gonna have to report as uh, income earnings for that tax year. So you really need to think of their tax picture. You need to think of what their financial picture looks like, how much equity they have, what are they looking to do next. You have to see what their motivation to sell is. A lot of times sellers who are gonna finance are really motivated to sell. They wanna let it go. They don't wanna deal with a bank because that could hold up the buyer from actually closing. Uh, it makes it a lot more smooth. The title transfers after a seller financing um, and a huge advantage to sellers who are gonna seller finance is if they default on the property, with you being the bank, you can take the property back. So if Mike were ever to, to try to sell or finance one of my places, if I ever uh, decide to dabble into that with him, um, if he stops paying the mortgage payments and I end up, he defaults, I can end up trying to foreclose on him and take the property back, which gives me a lot of security as a note holder. So there's a lot of interesting pieces to seller financing and there's a lot of options there. Um, the next thing I wanted to pivot into for you guys, if seller financing, arbitrage, turnkey, short-term rentals haven't been enough for you. I wanna talk a little bit about ground up new construction. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys who live in the Philly area and a lot of major cities are seeing some new development, but when you see these new luxury houses go up, uh, they're pretty cool places. Uh, Mike, you wanna to talk to a little, little bit about some of the places you've seen here in Philly? I know you go out looking at houses all the time. Oh yeah, I, I always try to get out there when I can. Um, that's one of my favorite things. Um, about being a real estate, honestly, is just able to actually 
basically you have keys to the entire city. Any anything that's for sale, you just go on your little app, you request a showing, and you can go there and, and check it out whenever, wherever. Um, and that's that's super cool, and I, I love doing that. I love looking at new things, and it's super interesting to, to kind of tap into JD's sort of network and be able to meet these developers that are, are building these things from the ground up. And sometimes we're able to even see things before even they hit the market, and we're able to kind of maybe get the first eyes at it and, and maybe start trying to advertise it out to some of our clients and be able to sell it out before there's there's much competition on it. Um, so it's super fun and interesting to be able to, to, be able to do that. Um, and that's I just I just love it. Yeah, I think you you hit a lot of solid points there in the advantages of looking at some of this new construction, um, especially when you have a relationship with the developers. So new construction is really fun and interesting because you can create that layout however you want. Of course, you only have a certain lot size. There's there's building codes and and how high you can build, um, how much of a setback you might have to have, and certain parameters you have to work within. But Mike, you're totally right. When we go out and look at places. It's super nice that we know that there's not competition. Um, we're getting that first eyeball. So yeah, maybe nine out of 10 things we look at are fairly cookie cutter or the developer didn't use the space to its, its fullest potential. And there's something we don't like about it, but that one out of 10 that we do find that we're like, wow, this guy did a really good job with how he finished the property. This place is awesome. I know he's asking X amount. Uh, we can pay X amount because he did a better job than the other nine out of 10 people. And now we have one of the best performing units on the market. Um, we're actually working on a ground up construction here in Philly um, where we're selling one of our original purchases. It was a two story home in Philadelphia. Um, we're selling that thing and using the equity that we had tied up to roll into the purchase of a lot with the plans and a ground up construction project. Uh, we're gonna have the bank financing all of the construction they're financing part of the lot, and we're still gonna have some money left over from our, our original sale. So it's it's a win-win-win um, in order of basically trading that old two-story property for what's now gonna be a four-story property. Mike and I were going over the plans of this four-story. Mike, tell us a little bit about what you saw in those construction plans. Oh, it's super interesting, and it really opened my eyes to, to kind of wondering why these developers aren't doing what I kind of saw in, in this design was where you sort of take the four the four story type building and you put a bedroom on on each floor, right? So by doing that, you're able to take these what was once small lots and and make it feel just much much bigger. Because some of these twelve these twelve long wide foot lots, um, it, it doesn't feel it kind of feels a little tight when you're inside the building. And what these developers will do is they'll try to squeeze two bedrooms on the one floor, and everything just feels so crammed and, and just tight and almost claustrophobic, honestly, sometimes. And by doing that, you, you can't even fit in things like bathrooms. Um, so you're left with something like a, a three bedroom, two bath, or maybe a four bedroom if they can squeeze it and it's super tight. Um, but what, we, what we've been seeing here and what we're gonna try to do with this new lot is make one bedroom on each floor with an ensuite bathroom, which is super cool. And there's one right down the street that's a three bedroom, three and a half bath and by taking the exact same space that they had and just adding that fourth bedroom making it one on each floor we're able to raise the value by at least fifty thousand dollars i'd say that's what we're hoping for mike we're, we're really hoping to see uh what we can do and kind of some appreciation we can force from the get-go um just by doing the design more properly uh as as you all know there are costs that are associated with building um if you're using the same amount of lumber you're putting in a kitchen you're, you're putting in a certain number of bathrooms. Like you said, they had three and a half, we're gonna do four. Um, 
a lot of these are going to be comparable. Um, it's all relative. So what they paid to build should be pretty similar to what we're paying to build. And where we're really forcing um, some extra gain is just by tailoring the layout to what we think would best suit a home buyer, um, but also the, the short-term rental space. And that's where it gets really interesting. Like I said earlier, the industry is, is trending towards less traditional houses. We're not just looking for one master suite um, for the parents and, and leaving the kids out to dry. Uh, what we're trying to do with this house is put in a kitchen that's large enough um, to accommodate multiple people cooking throughout the day. Uh, we're trying to make sure every bathroom is en suite and feels like the master. Uh, I was joking around with Mike that you're going to go up the first staircase to what is traditionally a, a two bedrooms with a, a hallway bathroom, and instead you're going to see a, a large bathroom, a large bedroom, and you're going to walk in that second floor and be like, wow, they put the master on the second floor. This is a master, master. But then you're going to walk up to the third floor and be like, oh, no way, dude, this is the master. And then most houses in Philly are traditionally three stories. You're going to go up to our now fourth floor, which most houses don't have, and you're going to see the master. So with that being said, um, the, just having three master suites, um, being able to, to get some of that extra space in there, that's just one of the ways that we played around with tailoring the design to what we wanted. And that's part of the fun of Ground Up. Like I said earlier, I don't like taking on projects that aren't fun. I don't like taking on projects that are cookie cutter. I really enjoyed this project because there's been a lot of creative design and a lot of looking at it and being involved from the opening piece. And that really allows um, for one, passion the project, and it makes the work that we have in real estate. Let's not kid ourselves, guys. Uh, real estate is work, but you don't work a day in your life if you enjoy what you do. So I've been getting really hyped on this project. I'm excited to see how it goes, and we'll update you on a later episode of the podcast. Um, let me flip back to Mike for a little bit longer. Uh, Mike, do you have anything else you want to bring up here on our Live Free podcast? Maybe talk about what uh, Live Free means to you. Uh, yeah, we can touch on that. So Live Free is basically just a movement um, that, that JD started here. Um, and Live Free really just means to me um, just doing sort of whatever you want, not being traditional, sort of that non-traditional job. I didn't go to the college at all. I skipped, skipped college, went straight from high school to just jumping straight into real estate. Um, and Living Free is just really doing whatever I want and not having to um, call into my boss and, and ask for days off or worry about if I'm working this day or that day um, to see if I can go out and hang with my friends or, or do something fun like go skiing or going to lakes things like that things that we all do now going to play laser tag fun things that I want to do that I'm not able to do because I have to answer to to a boss and, and ask permission to to use the time that I want to use um, and it, it's super interesting because once you get that kind of mindset switch in your head um, your whole life will change for the better. I don't think you could have said that any more perfectly, Mike. Uh, living free is, is all about being able to choose what you do with your life. Uh, a big misconception is it's about not working, and it's, it's actually quite the opposite. Live free means you get to spend your time doing exactly what it is that you want to do. So whether that's working on something for yourself um, or going to, to have some of that recreational time that you mentioned, it's all about being able to do with your time what you choose to do at the moments you choose to do it and finding something you're passionate about. Um, for a lot of us, uh, the traditional path is the nine to five, uh, and that's a great way to get started with real estate and to get the ability to, to take out loans. Uh, but I can imagine most of you that are listening to this have the same kind of mindset that we do in that we don't want only 17 days a year off and have to go into the office every day. Uh, like I said, a lot of places are allowing remote work. 
But even with that, you have to tell your boss, you have to ask for when you can have time off. You have to ask if going on that trip is okay. Um, Mike and I have definitely bonded over being able to hit each other up and be like, hey, do you want to go to North Carolina and check this property out? Hey, do you want to go hang out at this music festival? What about this NFT convention? There's a lot of things that we can do that other people are not able to do um, because of the mindset that we possess and just the strategy we have about how we spend our time. So Mike, I really appreciate that uh, definition of the live free vision and the live free movement. Uh, I just wanted to thank all of you guys for listening today. This is Live Free with JD. Uh, we went through a lot of different topics and I'm sure some may have been interesting, others may have been more interesting. And you guys can ask us questions about these anytime. Uh, my Instagram handle is Live Free with JD. And I'm at Live Free with Mikey on Instagram and pretty much all my socials are, are just about that too. Yeah, likewise, I think both our YouTube channels are those same respective Live Free with JD and Live Free with Mikey. So. If you guys have any questions, check out some of our, our YouTube stuff, check out our Instagrams and DM us on whatever topic you want and we'd be happy to get back to you and talk real estate. It's what we live for. So thanks for tuning in guys. Uh, this is Live Free with JD, tuning out. Live Free with Mikey, tuning out. And remember to live free. Live free.